Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Edward Frankel, who has just written Love and Math, a book which is as fascinating as the life of its author. And that's saying something because Edward is no ordinary mathematician. The story of how Edward overcame obstacles placed in his path by a hostile government to become a professor of mathematics at the University of California at Berkeley is reason by itself to read the book. And then there's another superb reason, the evident passion that he has for math and physics and which permeates the book. Edward, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Edward, I know the listeners would enjoy hearing about both your background and your book, but I'd like to start with start with the fascinating story of your life. In your book, you divide it into roughly four periods, student, apprentice mathematician, coming of age in America, and forays into the realm of art and cinema. And I know people would enjoy hearing about each. Right. So indeed, in my book, I talk about my personal story. And the reason I talk about this is I want to show my readers how I found my way into the world of mathematics, which I think is the most misunderstood subject. It is a, it is a critical subject, especially in the brave new world live in, and we'll probably talk about this more in the course of this interview, but it is, in my opinion, the most misunderstood subject, and uh, a lot of people find it difficult and maybe even impenetrable. So I wanted to tell my readers how I got into mathematics, because I wasn't in, in the same shoes as some of my readers. When I was a student in Russia, growing up in the Soviet Union, I also didn't think much of mathematics. I thought it was a boring and lifeless and irrelevant subject. What I was really fascinated with was quantum physics. And it was through quantum physics that I was able to appreciate the importance of mathematics. So that's the beginning of the story, uh, the, st- the part of the story of falling in love with mathematics. So that's sort of the first period I described when just by sheer luck, um, I, was, I got uh, acquainted with a professional mathematician who was a friend of my parents. And um, he showed me the glimpses of this magic world of mathematics, which I did not even know existed. Uh, and I remember that moment very well, and, and I describe it in the book. Um, I was really curious about quantum physics, and I was reading popular books about it. I was fascinated with elementary particles and interactions between them. But I didn't really know how or why physicists were able to uh, theorize those particles, understand their behavior. And this guy, this mathematician, I, uh, during our first meeting, he said, well, you are fascinated with physics, but do you know how physics come, came up with this ideas?" And I said, no. He said, well, let me show you. He pulls, pulled out a book from shelf, and he showed me, opened it, and, and I, I saw this, these pictures and diagrams and formulas and equations, and even though at that time I couldn't really understand what they meant, it was clear that there was something in there that I had to know, that... I, I wanted to understand in order to understand, you know, physics, which was dear to my, to, to my heart at the time. So that's how that my journey started. And in, in the, it wasn't so rosy. 
from that point on. I describe in my book the obstacles also that I had to face in the Soviet Union, in which in those days, in the 1980s, actually 1984, some of your listeners probably remember the great novel 1984. So, in fact, a present, present no, novel by, by Orwell. Um, there were these draconian anti-Semitic policies in place in the Soviet Union. So I was actually denied entrance to Moscow University, to the, their famous Department of Mathematics and Mechanics, which was the only place in Moscow to study pure mathematics, just based on the fact that, you know, one of my parents was Jewish. It wasn't a religious issue. It was just by blood, by ethnicity. So, so you know, but when you're in love, nothing can stop you. And so... Uh, I was able to continue on uh, to follow my dream, and uh, I describe that. So that that's sort of the second the second part of the second period, as you if you will, uh, when I became an apprentice mathematician, when a great mathematician took me under his wing and let me develop my talent. And uh, so I was attending a technical school in in Moscow, but at the same time I was able to learn some mathematics that so that I could actually do research, original research on the cutting edge of math. And uh, some of that research was, I wrote it, you know, and it was um, smuggled outside of Russia. And uh, so that's, so, and, and I was, and, and so became, began the third period, which is when I was, suddenly I got an invitation from Harvard to come as, as a visiting professor, barely, you know, 20, 21 years old, finishing college in Moscow. So I came to Harvard, came to the, to the United States, and um, uh, you know embarked on some of the most interesting projects I've ever worked on, uh, such as the Langlands program, which I talk about in the book. So that's pretty much just roughly that, the outline of that story. And then that led me eventually to sort of this idea of trying to communicate um, the beauty of mathematics and importance of mathematics to, to everyone. As I was finding more and more, especially in this country, the sort of um, a pandemic uh, um, ignorance of, of mathematics. I think that one of the things that struck me in your book when I was reading it is that there were several incidents that you described that just struck me as had parallels in my own life. And having read about some of the other mathematicians as well, parallels in theirs. There's one event you describe it as when, you know, when you looked in the book and saw the diagrams. I remember when I, uh, when I was young, when I read about an eclipse of the sun that was due to occur in New York, and they had it all predicted down to, you know, down to the microsecond and how, what percentage of totality it was. And I wondered, how could we know this thing? And I think that many mathematicians have incidents like that in your lives and in their lives. And I live in Los Angeles where success is often determined by being in the right place at the right time because there are thousands of talented performers and artists who are not successful simply because there are more performers than opportunities for performers. And do you think that's true for mathematicians as well? The talent sometimes goes unrecognized and you were the fortunate recipient of a lucky break and there were probably other unrecognized Edward Frankels around? Probably, probably. Well, I think to some extent it, it is true even in mathematics that talent sometimes goes unrecognized. Um, we witnessed a remarkable story recently of a mathematician, Yitang Zhang, who proved a very important result in number theory, um, an advance towards this, the proof of the so-called twin prime conjecture. And that just happened recently, this year, earlier this year. And so this, this, this guy was working on this problem for many years. And apparently was unrecognized until he found this proof. He was, 
for for a long time. He was outside of academia, couldn't find an academic job, and and yet he was able to make this um, you know gr- groundbreaking um, advances in in an area which was very competitive as well. So that's a wonderful story, and it shows that sometimes you know you you, you just have to follow your heart and, and and work as hard as you can, and you will succeed. So that happens in mathematics, but I think it happens uh, less often than say in the arts. And the reason for that, in my view, is the objective character of mathematics. Mathematical knowledge is objective. If we uh, just to give an example, you know, to look at uh, Pythagoras' theorem, it means the same thing to everyone anywhere in the world. It meant the same thing to Pythagoreans who discovered it 2,500 years ago, and will mean the same thing, you know, 25 years, 2,500 years from now. Uh, that's something very special. So you don't need someone to go and promote a mathematical theorem. Its truth speaks for itself. Whereas, you know, if you have a work of art, usually uh, we, we get to know it when, when someone of authority, a figure of authority tells us that it is something important, something good. So there is this element of, of uh, the social element in, in the arts, which is much more um, uh, pronounced, I think, than in, in, in mathematics. We are, uh, in our community, it's, we have the luxury of sort of like being independent of the uh, of authority because if someone like Zhang proves the result and if it pans out, if the proof pans out, if it's verified and they see that it is correct, it doesn't matter whether, you know, he is a Harvard professor or someone who, as he did, worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know. So mathematics has this inherent democracy, which I think opens opportunities for more opportunities for people, for those who work in this field. I think you're right to a large extent, but there are some dark stories in both mathematics and the sciences in that the research that somebody can be doing may not be on a problem such as the twin prime conjecture in which the importance of the results are evident. And I'm thinking of two examples, one from mathematics and one from one from science. George Cantor, whom I'm sure you know, very famous mathematician of the 19th century, who basically worked out the mathematics of dealing with infinite quantities, um, was sort of condemned to the German minor leagues of academia because he, first of all, I think he suffered from the same uh, problem that you had. He was Jewish or at least had Jewish parents and he was living in an anti-Semitic environment, but also because the leading lights of the German mathematical community felt that the work that he was doing was not important. And I think that's a problem with anybody who does groundbreaking work. The other example that I was thinking of was Jonas Salk, who when he invented the polio vaccine, he worked with a different model for uh, for viruses and ant vaccines than was adopted by the uh, leading lights of the uh, immunological community at the time. And as a result, he incurred, you know, by doing this groundbreaking work, he incurred the wrath of the, of the higher ups and he was never, uh, he was never accepted in the National Academy of Sciences or never on the short list for the Nobel Prize. So whereas I do think that in general, the cream does rise to the top. Sometimes there's something around to suppress it. And I think that, you know, I think that stories such as yours and also the individual that you describe, and I did you know, when you describe that individual, he was really working at Kentucky Fried Chicken? Right. No, well, he worked as the manager. So, you know. Oh, okay. But nonetheless, that's just absolutely startling. It's startling. The, the, he was outside, as far as I know, uh, if I remember correctly from interview with him I read, 
uh, he was out of academia for seven years and then he was uh, he wasn't, wasn't able to find a job but um so this happens and i absolutely agree with you and actually i, I love this example with your cantor the creator of the theory of infinity because it's, it's a great example when someone came, someone came up with ideas so radical that the community simply could not understand them and they were attacking uh, Cantor, saying you can't do these things you know you're not allowed and in response to his critics Cantor said something, which I actually quote in the, in the, at the very beginning of my book. He said, yes, I can, because the essence of mathematics lies in its freedom. In other words, mathematics frees you of all the dogmas and prejudice, you know, and allows you to just, you know, there, there are some axioms, there are some rules, but within those axioms and rules, you are free to go. And so there's this very important aspect of freedom that mathematics gives us. But you're right, his ideas were too radical. And of course, another example would be Evariste Galois, the French prodigy who um, lived only until he, you know, he died in a duel before he turned 21, but came up with these revolutionary ideas about numbers and, uh, and equations, which we still use to this day. His work submitted to the French Academy of Sciences we're talking about the beginning of the 19th century, was misunderstood. Uh, it was not accepted. Only 45 years later was rediscovered by others, way, well after his death. So yes, indeed, it happens. But, so I agree with you. Well, mathematicians are human. So, and, you know, nothing human is alien to them. So oh, sometimes people are slow to appreciate, uh, appreciate discoveries and so on. But the objective character of mathematical knowledge, it sort of serves as a little bit of a safeguard against this sort of um, situation where somebody who has come up with, with great ideas goes unrecognized. That's what I've always liked about mathematics and science. It's not perfect, but it's objective. And the objectivity in mathematics comes from the internal logic. For instance, I don't think anybody disagreed that what Cantor was doing was incorrect. I think the problem that they had was that they just, the, the ideas were so radical that even though they could see they were correct, they just didn't accept them. Right. And the same is true in science, however, you have an even more, uh, objective, uh, objective way to judge things by performing experiments. That gets into a later question that I would like to ask you, but I, I'd like to deal with your, uh, experiences as a Russian for a moment, if that's okay. Speaking of Cantor, though, just one, a small remark, you know, his, his ideas were so radical that he himself didn't believe some of his results. You know, which is, I find it very, <laughs> he wrote famously in a letter, he said, I, I proved this and I see it, but I don't believe it. So in a way, it's a very, it was a very unique moment because he really, uh, his ideas were so radic radically new and, and, and revolutionary that it's a very special, very, very interesting story. It is indeed. Um, one of the things that I recall from your book is that your parents advised you not to come back to the Soviet Union. Well, some of your Russian colleagues also felt that the temptations of a consumer society such as the United States would lead you to neglect your work. You decided to stay in the United States, and it obviously hasn't impaired your productivity on a whole bunch of levels. Have you been back to Russia? If so, how were you treated? And if not, why haven't you gone back? Very good question. Well, so, so let me start from the beginning. So, the, as I said, in uh, I was as as I was finishing college in Russia, you know, I, I I had some papers written which were smuggled literally outside of Russia. Was a visiting um, a visiting uh, Swedish uh, physicist, Lars Brink, uh, who actually is now the chair of the Nobel Prize Committee, as I recently found out. It's very interesting. He's very very nice guy. 
uh, he was kind enough to take my paper, uh, my article, uh, scholarly article that I wrote in English, to take it with him to Sweden and to make four copies. And I gave him a list of addresses of, of various um, mathematicians and physicists who I thought would be interested in this paper. So he, And he did uh, send them four copies. That was way before the Internet. It was 1989. Uh, well, not before the World Wide Web, I guess. And so uh, that's how I, you know, people at Harvard noticed me and I got this invitation that I mentioned earlier. So 1989, um, I, I came to America, I came to Harvard, and that's what that's what started my, my, my mathematical, full-fledged mathematical career. But you're right, I was torn. I, I, when I came to Harvard, I, I thought I would go back three months later. I, I didn't imagine that I would stay in the United States. I had my family, my friends in the Soviet Union, and I thought that I should, I should go back. And what exacerbated the situation was that my parents were, as you pointed out, actually adamant that I should stay in the United States because, you know, in Russia, things were collapsing. There was economic turmoil. It was clear that the government had no desire to support science. Not, let, not to mention the, the anti-Semitism that I had to, to fight with every step of the way was still prevalent, and it wasn't clear whether I would be able to ever get a job in academia. So my parents were saying, no, you, your opportunities are in the United States. You should stay in the United States. But my teacher, my, my, my mentor, uh, Boris Fagan, who was also visiting Harvard at the same time, he had the opposite opinion about this, and he was really concerned. Um, that I would not be able to become to be a good mathematician in the United States. He said, you know, America, America, it's all about you know instant gratification. It's a consumer society and so on. And some of the, to some extent, I think he was right. And I was I was very concerned about this too. And I was like, what if he's right about this? What if I cannot really you know focus on my work? Well, uh, I guess uh, that that didn't happen. I was able to stay focused and uh, at the same time enjoy my life here and and be able to have uh, a fulfilling fulfilling life. But it, it didn't come easy. I was really torn for a few months. And, and this decision to stay in the United States did not come easy. As for my, um, and, and, and I never regretted this. I, I, I do feel that uh, I would not be able to um, fulfill my dream uh, to the fullest, not be able to do as much as I, in mathematics, as I have been able to, had I returned to, back to the Soviet Union. Um, now, or Russia, as for going back, I haven't really been back in a long time. And, uh, of course, I still, you know, my parents, I brought my parents later to, to, to the United States. They immigrated uh, five years after me, my parents and my sister's family. And they live in the Boston, they have been living in the Boston area ever since. I actually visited them just uh, uh, about a week ago um, because I was, I was doing a book event, you know, Harvard Square, so that my, my, my alma mater. And so, but, um, so I, I have some friends in Russia but I don't really go back, and uh, um, I don't know. I would like to go back at some point, but there are certain things about Russia today which really concern me, and um, I, I, you know, I, I, I care deeply about what's going on over there. And some of the recent uh, news kind of don't give me comfort. Well, I think I'm a little more shallow than you because I left Chicago at an early age and I generally don't go back for possibly the same reason that people don't go back to Moscow. It's really cold in the winter and it's nice and warm in California. That's a good point. That's a good point. 
<laughs> anyway, I'd like to switch the conversation to some of your work involving mathematics. And when I read your book, your book was eye-opening for me because I'm in a totally brand different branch of mathematics than you are. There were, of course, points of, you know, points of common interest, but the central ideas in mathematics that you study are not the same as the central ideas that appeal to me. And it was sort of interesting because you had someone working with you as an at an early age who saw the importance of geometry and symmetry. And when I was studying mathematics, and you point this out in your book, that we generally don't pay attention to this at an early age, that what we do is um, we learn rules for calculation, which enable us to do some very important practical problems. But in it, we miss sort of the beauty of mathematics. And I think I'd like to start off with what you think are, uh, how you would describe symmetry and the role that it plays in both mathematics and physics. Excellent question. Um, so the, the, I try to give my readers an, an idea of what modern mathematics is about. And of course, in a, you know, within one book, it would be impossible to do justice to, to this enormous archipelago of knowledge that is mathematics. So of course, the, the choice of topics is shaped by my taste, by the subjects that I know best, the subjects that are closest to my own research. But I wanted to show things which we never get to see when we study mathematics at school. In fact, most people think of mathematics as what we study. And, and that's a very, very small tiny amount. I was under the same impression myself when I was a student in the Soviet Union until I met that mathematician, as I told the story earlier. And so, in fact, I, I you know, at the very beginning of my book, I make this analogy. I say, you know, that the way mathematics is taught is would be similar to teaching an art class in which you only you, you teach your students only how to paint a fence or a wall, but never show them the paintings of the masters, uh, Picasso, Van Gogh, Leonardo da Vinci, never even tell them that such paintings exist. So then, of course, if if all there is to art, if, if painting a fence is, is all there is to art, if, if you are under that impression, of course, you will say uh, later on, Oh, I hate I hate art, or I, I was so bad at art. What you would really be saying is, I was bad at painting the fence. But no one told you that there was a lot more to 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 to, to the art, and and likewise in mathematics. So so then I have I would like to show I would like to give examples of the kind of objects that we never get to see, but which are much more beautiful and much more profound than the kind of limited material that we get exposed to at school. And one of this one of this ideas, one of this concepts, topics. And objects are is the idea of symmetry, and uh, symmetry we encounter symmetry uh, every day in, in in our lives. You know, we, when I ask people what what do you think of symmetry, they point out to you know snowflakes, or they say that human body is symmetrical. But what does it really mean? And so, uh, to really justice to symmetry, I think one one needs to approach it mathematically. And in mathematics, there's a beautiful theory of symmetry where you get to the heart of what does it mean to be symmetrical, and what it means is that for an object to be symmetrical is that it uh, allows various transformations uh, which preserve its shape and position. So if you, if you have a round table, for example, uh, say, let's say if you and I were sitting at the round table and you looked away and I turned that table around the, the central axis and you, you look back, you wouldn't know that I turned that table if it were really perfectly round, right? So any, any rotation by any angle, as long as it is done around the center, the center point or the center axis of the table, uh, would actually give you the same table, would have the same position and the same shape. 
That's that wouldn't be true for for square table. For square table, it would have to be rotation by ninety degrees or one hundred eighty or two hundred and seventy degrees. So we say that such transformations, which preserve a given object, are symmetries of that object. So now it's clear why, say, a round table is more symmetrical than a square table, because any rotation is a symmetry. A rotation by any angle is a symmetry, whereas for a square table, only rotations by multiples of 90 degrees are symmetries, and there are few of those. So that's the beginning of a beautiful theory, because, well, here you use symmetry in, in geometry. Um, and, of course, you can look at more sophisticated objects. For example, let's look at a sphere uh, and, 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 and talk about symmetry for a sphere. Now you can rotate it, but also the axis of rotation can change. It can be, there are many, many different axes of rotation that you can use. There are many more symmetries, and they interact in a more sophisticated way. But what is even more remarkable is that the same idea of symmetry can also be applied in other branches of mathematics, for example, in the study of numbers. And that's where the, the insights of Paris Galois, the French prodigy I talked about earlier, uh, were, were first made. That he realized that just like a table could be symmetrical, an equation could also have some symmetries, or some numbers could have symmetries. And, and it's sort of easy to explain how it works. So let's say if you have an equation, uh, if you have an equation, you know, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, um, you could you could switch a and b, and so you'll get b squared plus a squared equals c squared. But but b squared plus a squared is the same as a squared plus b squared, so you get back the same equation. So again, you have a sort of permutation of variables, but under the permutation, the equation stays the same, and that means it is symmetrical. And Galois' great insight was that if you know something like this about an equation or about its solutions, then you can learn a lot about the equation or the solutions with, without actually trying to solve it directly. And that's the beauty of mathematics. That's the power of mathematics. That, you know, for centuries people tried to solve a particular kind of equations, quadratic equations we solve, you know, when we study in high school, say algebra in high school. Then you can look at more sophisticated cubic equations and you can try to generalize the formula that you all get to learn at high school, quadratic equations, to equations of higher degree, cubic, quartic, and so on. And that's how mathematics developed for centuries. People tried to find this formula, and then they kind of they kind of hit a wall. They couldn't find a solution for a quintic equation, an equation of degree five. And then the question was, well, is it because we are not trying hard enough? Let's try some other methods. But then Galois came and looked at the problem in a totally different light. And he said, no, you should not try to solve the, solve the equation directly. You should instead describe its symmetries. And that's where he was able to find a solution to the problem, which was actually that the formula does not exist in a in, in way in which it was understood at the time. The formula doesn't exist. So that's why that's a great example of symmetry playing a fundamental role in mathematics. And not just in geometry, where we can observe it in the most direct way, but even in such in a more abstract area such as number theory. And in my book, I also talk about applications of same, the same ideas in quantum physics. I think that would be very interesting for our listeners if you could at least sketch what the basic idea of symmetry might be in that area. I realize it's a very deep subject, um, but at least if you have some insights that we might be able to share on a fairly uh, elementary level, we'd love to hear them. Oh, I would. Absolutely. Um, this, this idea is, and by the way, one of the points that I make in my book, uh, I say, you know, people think of mathematics as such an abstract subject, and it is true. It is more abstract than other areas of science, for example. So in science, you know, if we talk about DNA, there is, there is a clear reason, you know, at the outset why someone would want to know about this, because 
you know, we are all composed of DNA. We have DNA inside of us or elementary particles. You know, someone said, you know, each of us is just a bag of elementary particles, which is, which is true. So that immediately gives us an opening into the world of physics or the world of biology. Uh, we want to talk about the solar system because we see the sun rise and set every day. Uh, now, with mathematics, it's not as obvious why someone would want to know about it. But there are many reasons because mathematics is really invading our life, and especially in, 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 recent, in recent years. But uh, my point in the book is to say, look, you don't have to be a mathematician to appreciate this stuff. You don't have to um, understand it at the, most, at, at, at the highest level of precision. I'm not a biologist. I took a class in biology. But if someone talks to me about DNA, you know, I know the basics. I know the basic idea, so I would be able to carry the conversation. I won't run away. But if I try to talk about symmetry, for example, or about the Langlands program, which is one of the subjects of my book, of you know, in my experience, a lot of people just shut down. They are afraid, they're frightened by it. They are afraid that they will not be able to understand. So my point is that actually this, this idea is, first of all, number one, as fundamental as other ideas in science, such as, you know, quantum physics and Einstein's relativity theory and the solar system and DNA. And yet they can be, just like those ideas, mathematical ideas can also be explained in an accessible way. So let me try to explain how symmetry shows up in physics. And it's easy to do because we just discussed about how symmetry shows up in geometry through transformations of geometric shapes, like a round table, square table, and also through transformations of equations, say, uh, like a squared plus b squared equals c squared or something like this. And likewise, when we study um, elementary particles, such as electrons and, um, you know, quarks, which are the building blocks of protons and neutrons that occupy the nucleus of every atom, or or the now very famous Higgs boson, you know, which has been in the news lately because a Nobel Prize has been awarded for the prediction of this particle. Uh, when we talk about these particles, they are like a, a round table or like a, a, a square table in the sense that they also have symmetries. There are certain transformations that one can make of those particles that preserve them. And these transformations, but, but these transformations are kind of hidden. So these are not the obvious transformations. This is not a rotation of a particle in any obvious sense in the space, in, in, the, in, in the physical space. It is more about the inner world of a particle. Each particle, as we learn in quantum physics, has sort of an inner world. And it is within that inner world that we can, it can have certain symmetries. And so some of the particles could be more symmetrical, some less so. Also, the interaction between particles are based on certain symmetries. The standard model of quantum physics, which describes three forces of nature, that is to say all forces of nature except gravity, the electromagnetic force, the strong force, and the weak force, the last two being the forces that occur at the nuclear level, um, this standard model has some remarkable symmetry. It is, in fact, what mathematicians call, and physicists call gauge theory. So it has what's called gauge symmetry built in. And that's something you can observe at the level of equations, but you can also observe it experimentally. And what we learned in the last, you know, 100 years, especially in physics, is that the more we know about those symmetries, the better we understand the behavior of elementary particles and interactions between them. 
Edward, I went to a lecture a number of years ago at Caltech that was given by Ed Witten. And, um, he was, it was an amazing lecture because half the people in the, in the audience were Nobel Prize winners. Everybody was wearing a name tag and I'm sort of a Nobel Prize winner junkie. And I guess they were wondering how I got there. Um, but anyway, he was giving an, uh, a basic level talk on string theory. And there was a question and answer session at the end. And at the end, one of the, I think a Nobel Prize winner and biologist raised his hand and said, do you really think this is the way it is? And Witten said, if I didn't think this is the way it is, I wouldn't have been studying it for 10 years. But do we have any evidence that string theory might be an ultimate description of reality? Despite what Witten said, I've heard some physicists decry string theory as unprovable mathematical theology. Very good question. A short answer is that at the moment, we don't have any experimental proof that string theory describes the physics of the universe. In, in some sense, one could argue that the situation is even worse in that no one has, as of yet, um, been able to come up with a realistic experiment that would prove or disprove whether string theory actually has something to do with the laws of physics that we have in, in the observed, observed universe. Uh, so having said that, I, I want to say that, you know, that could be the, the reason for that could be that we don't really know yet what string theory is. And that's actually true. It's not really a theory. It is more of a collection of tricks and ideas, which are very powerful. So the mathematics involved is very interesting, very powerful. String theory itself did not just show up, you know, by itself. Uh, it didn't show up just, you know, out of the blue. The reason why uh, physicists are so, got, were so, and still are, uh, excited about string theory is that it is a theory which uh, um, gives a, a plausible scenario of how to combine all forces of nature, including gravity. So that's interesting, right? Because the standard model, as I just said earlier, just a couple of minutes ago, only described three out of four forces of nature. So it is an incomplete theory. There are many other reasons why it's incomplete. For example, it only describes uh, somewhere between 15 and 20% of the matter that we observe in the cosmos. The rest is the so-called dark matter, which we don't know what it consists of, you see. So standard model for all its success is an incomplete theory. And one of the reasons is that gravity is not included. And there is a d very deep um, fundamental uh, principle which is behind this, which is that uh, we don't know, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the formalism which works for electromagnetism in the nuclear forces. We don't know how to apply it to gravity to Einstein's equations of relativity theory. So there is sort of this disconnect, there is this sort of big gap between Einstein's relativity theory, which deals with gravitation at large distances, and with the quantum world, which deals with physics at small at small distances. So what physicists realized in the 70s, uh, it was sort of like a discovery, like an almost an accidental discovery. What they realized is that in, within, within string theory, you get not only quantum, quantum theory, such as standard model, not only theory, possibility of getting, you know, a description of all forces, such as electromagnetic, um, uh, strong and weak, which, which has been the domain of the conventional quantum physics, but also Einstein's equations. They just fall in your lap when you study string theory. And that is a remarkable property of string theory, which I have to say there are very few theories today in quantum physics 
perhaps only one, the string theory. One could argue that there are some other candidates, but the most well-known is string theory. It's almost essentially the only unique theory known today, which actually gives you a path to quantum theory of gravity. So that's a very strong statement. And that's a good, that's a good reason to study it. Even if, like I said, at the moment, we don't know whether um, string theory actually is, you know, can be observed in the universe. So I would say that saying that it is, as, as you said, to quote from your question, unprovable mathematical theology, I think it's a no statement. That's not the case in my opinion. I think we have to be realistic and we have to sort of, we shouldn't sort of jump from one end, you know, to another, from one extreme to another. On one hand, we have to be realistic about uh, the, the fact that, first of all, an experiment is the ultimate judge of any theory in physics. And for now, string theory does not have uh, any solid experimental proof or even the possibility of such a proof. We don't see that yet. But at the same time, we should also be aware of what of, of what exactly string theory gives us and appreciate that it actually has beautiful ideas. Also appreciate the fact that there is a lot more that we have to learn about string theory, that it is not yet fully, not yet fully developed. So we Really know the fact that we don't really know. It doesn't mean that we'll never know. We might know in the near future. We might know next year. We might know in ten years. So I think that it is definitely worthwhile to continue studying string theory. But it is also very important to be realistic about what its state is right now, and not try to oversell it. Not try to say that it is a theory of everything. It's not this theory of everything. Let's just you know, as 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 a Nobel Prize winner, you know, uh, David Gross said, let's sh- just shut up and calculate. In other words, just do your work and try to get to the heart of the matter and try to understand as much as you can. And and physicists and mathematicians should not try to, you know, prejudge uh, one way or the other where this is all going to go. Edward, when I listen to you, I'm hearing echoes of the mathematician G.H. Hardy, who received a letter from the Indian mathematician Ramanujan, a man whom he'd never heard of describing some results in number theory. And Hardy said that when he read that letter, um, which was written by a total unknown, very much like, you, you know, the manager of the Kentucky Fried Chicken Institution, it's amazing how often these stories repeat itself. But Hardy said when he wrote, when he read that letter, he knew that some of the results were true, some of the results he suspected were true, and some of the results were too beautiful not to be true. And maybe that describes string theory, or at least it could be a possible description of it. Yes, with one caveat, though, I would like to draw a distinction between a mathematical theory and a physical theory. And, you know, my work has been mostly on mathematics, but in recent years, um, I have also worked in in quantum physics. And in particular, I have collaborated with Edward Witten, whom you mentioned earlier, who is one of the greatest living uh, physicists. And I talk about uh, his work, and I also talk about his collaboration with me. Um, and, uh, you know, have some personal remarks also about him. Uh, it's a very interesting man. And so I kind of take my readers in my book, Love and Math, I take my readers sort of behind the scenes of, uh, of what really, what is really going on in science when, when discoveries are made. So I, I sort of like, sometimes we're ahead of mathematicians, sometimes ahead of a physicist. And I have to say that there is a big difference between the two. And I, I think that people from outside of math and physics, they, oftentimes they don't fully appreciate this because the subjects seem to be so intertwined and they are but there's a big difference and the difference is that in mathematics as long as the theory is consistent it makes sense and so that's the beauty for example is, is a very important aspect because it sort of underscores you know it, it sort of convinces you that the theory should work 
in this mathematical, abstract mathematical world. But beauty is also important in, in physical reality. But at the end of the day, no matter how beautiful a, a theory, a physical theory is, if, if there is no experiment which proves it to be true, um, then this theory is not yet physical, right? It doesn't describe the universe. So uh, beauty is, is an important guiding principle. There is, a, there is a, a beautiful, no pun intended, story about Paul Dirac, you know, which I recently heard discovering um, a, his equation, his famous Dirac equation, which actually, among other things, uh, predicted the existence of antimatter, which was soon discovered, soon afterwards. That was a purely mathematical prediction. Um, uh, he discovered he discovered this equation, and then he was. But he wanted to double check whether it, it it works. And he was, you know, getting his bicycle to go to, to the university to check on the spectrum of the hydrogen atom. When it hit him by his own account, that the equation is so beautiful that sort of he felt good about it. That he felt that it has a good chance of being uh, representing physical reality. So beauty is a guiding principle, but we have to be careful not so as not to forget. That ex- the experiment is the is the ultimate judge of a physical theory. I'd like to now explore other aspects of mathematics, in particular, um, what do you think accounts for, as the physicist Eugene Wigner put it, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences? Why do you think it has proved less effective in the social sciences and the arts, or do you think it will be as effective in time? We just haven't discovered ways to utilize it because these are more complicated areas than the areas of the physical sciences. That's a very good question, and I discuss this in detail in my book. Um, again, uh, for for your listeners who you know may not uh, not sort of outside of math and physics, it may sometimes sound strange. Why would someone ask the question about and say that there is a, the effectiveness of mathematics in the physical world in the physical world is unreasonable? Because in the minds of of, of, of many people, the two subjects are so are so intertwined that it's sort of like a Yes, of course. People say, yeah, of course, it's it's useful. But if you if you look at it more deeply, you realize that actually a lot of theories in mathematics were de- were were developed totally independently from any physical applications. And one beautiful example is the theory of of Bernhard Riemann, a German mathematician, who asked the question as to whether we can have we can we can talk about or study or understand curved shapes such as a sphere, for example, or the surface of a donut. Uh, intrinsically, without a reference to an ambient space, a, a landscape, a flat a landscape into which it is embedded. We always think of a sphere, which by sphere I mean the surface of a basketball, for example. It is curved, right? Just like the surface of the Earth is curved. It is curved, but we always imagine it being embedded into something, into space. So, uh, you know, we have a basketball, it is flying on the basketball court, you know. So it is within this three-dimensional space. We can't really imagine a sphere by itself, not, not, not being embedded into anything. So, so for most people, doesn't, the question doesn't even occur. But if you are a mathematician, then you go in, in, in a situation like this, you go deeper and you say, well, can a sphere exist by itself? Is there a mathematical language in which you can actually talk about a sphere without being able to, uh, to embed it somewhere? Because it's very easy to embed a sphere. You can write down the equation x squared plus y squared plus z squared equals 1. So you get a sphere of radius 1 in the Cartesian three-dimensional coordinate system. But can you do it without it? And, 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 and Riemann, in the second half of the 19th century, was, came up with a beautiful answer. He said, yes, you can. And the only thing you need 
is the notion of a distance between any two points in your space. So in a sphere, we know how to calculate the distance, the shortest distance between any two points. You kind of draw a meridian between passing through these points and you measure the arc length of that meridian, of the piece of that meridian connecting the points. And so that is enough to define the space by itself. But at the time, other people were saying, well, like, why do you care? Because in the real world, all the spaces, all the curved spaces we see are always embedded into some flat landscape. And they were wrong because actually, as it turned out, as Einstein explained to us in his general relativity theory, our space-time is actually curved also. So it, 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 we have to have a formalism. We have to have a way to describe our space-time, which does not refer to it being embedded into something. And that's where Einstein drew on the work of Riemann, which was done 50 years earlier. Now, Riemann had no intent, intention of he had no he did not think that our world was was curved. But he came up with this idea. He he came up with this question within the narrative of mathematics, and that happens often, very often. So it's not clear why there should be such an intimate link. Why uh, you know mathematics should be so effective in natural sciences or in, in physics in particular. And that leads to another question, which you which you mentioned, which is the question. As to, you know, one of the questions is uh, whether mathematics can also be uh, applicable, can be applied as efficiently to other areas of human endeavor. For example, in social sciences, is it just physics and natural sciences where mathematics is effective? Or what about economics? What about social sciences? And I think my, uh, my feeling is that the reason why mathematics has not been as effective is because of the barriers, of the natural barriers that have been erected, that the, there is a resistance to uh, using mathematics, for example, in economics. And, uh, and, and we actually know that, uh, you know, today we are on the verge, I think, of finding some uh, really groundbreaking, uh, of, of, of developing some groundbreaking theories in economics, which are based on sophisticated mathematics. And actually, very closely related to this DH theories I talked about earlier. Uh, last week, the Fields Institute in Toronto, uh, just to give an example, uh, and that's the institute which is funded by the same foundation that awards the Fields Medal in Mathematics, which is considered by many as an equivalent of the Nobel Prize. So, Fields Institute held a conference on mathematical methods in economics, and uh, I watched um, a video of a talk which is given by by mathematician economists, uh, Pia Malani and Eric Weinstein. The, the video is actually available on the Fields Institute website. It's very easy to find them. And they basically say, what if we were wrong about most of our fears about mathematics and economics? Because oftentimes you hear from economists that, oh, mathematics doesn't help you, it only leads you astray, and so on. But could it be because we are not, that in economics, we are not using the appropriate mathematical formalism. And I think actually we need more mathematics in, uh, after watching these lectures I'm convinced that we need more mathematics in economics, not less. But we need the, the right mathematics. And it could well be that the kind of mathematics that people use in, um, in quantum physics could actually hold the key to answering some of the fundamental questions in physics. But when you move to the realm of, of economics, of social science, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of money involved. There is a, there's sort of a social effect. There is existence. So I think that uh, that is the reason why we haven't seen as many applications. But I think the tide is now turning in economics. I think we will see more applications of mathematics in the coming years.
Uh, Edward, if we were just having a private conversation, I'd talk to you about Isaac Asimov's science fiction trilogy, Foundation and Empire, in which he actually brings up the idea of a mathematical theory of history. And there are some interesting aspects to that. But since we only have a limited amount of time, I can't really go there at the moment. I'd like to go into your personal venture into the world of cinema. And maybe you could describe how you got there, what the result was and whether or not you feel that you will do more of this and whether or not there'll be more films like this in the future. All right. Um, well, that's something, that's a subject, I talk about this in the last chapter of my book, actually, and, uh, um, you know, in my work, my work in mathematics, and I describe this in the book, uh, has been on the interface of different uh, areas of mathematics. And, you know, mathematics is this tremendous archipelago of knowledge, which sort of has different continents, um, which uh, correspond to different areas, such as number theory, which we talked about earlier, or geometry, or analysis, uh, or, um, or algebra. And uh, at the outset, these fields are kind of connected from each other. Um, people who work in one area often don't talk to people working in other areas, not, not familiar with the recent advances made in other areas. But I think what is what what helps, uh, you know, what 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 truly leads to advances in mathematics is when we find connections and links between these different fields. And that's why in my book I talk about the Langlands program. Robert Langlands is a mathematician who uh, is a professor at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And incidentally, he occupies the office, which was formerly occupied by Albert Einstein at the Institute for Advanced Study. So about 50, almost 50 years ago, he came up with these revolutionary ideas connecting different areas of mathematics. And in, the, in, the, in the last 50 years, this idea is actually propagated even further, connecting things in geometry and number theory and analysis, and now also in quantum physics. And so, um, so this is a good example of, of what modern mathematics is about. And so I was fascinated with this theory when I, you know, I was talking about coming to Harvard, uh, uh, 21 years old, and looking for my next project. And I met this uh, brilliant mathematician, Vladimir Drinfeld, who explained to me the basics of the language program. And it turned out that some of my research, some of the research I did in Moscow, you know, which was smuggled outside of Russia, uh, was actually, ter- turned out to be very useful for the development of that theory. So that, co- that, that might, you know, pique my interest. And since then, I've been working in this area. But to be able to work in this area, you had to, I had to study um, different domains. And so, and I found this pretty interesting, fascinating. And then I realized that I wanted to, exp- to tell others about this. I wanted to exp- tell number theorists what's happening in geometry. I want to tell geometrists what's happening in number theory. So over the years, I give lectures and wrote re- uh, survey articles for mathematicians, but for mathematicians um, who are not experts on the language program. And I realized you know, people talked to me and wrote to me and, and thanked me for this. And they said that they were, you know, they found it very useful. So that was my first sort of foray to trying to, to convey these ideas to a larger, to a larger audience. My next step was to move to, towards quantum, quantum field theory. And in my book, I describe how the ideas of the language program actually found applications in quantum physics. Uh, so which is actually kind of an interesting story also at the human level of how people involved, such as Edward Witten, how they actually got interested in the subject. I describe this in detail in my book. And so that was sort of the second step. And then, of course, naturally, this led me to, to think, well, how do I even, how do I communicate 
the ideas of mathematics to people who are not mathematicians, who are not physicists, who are not scientists. Because I do believe it's very important to know that there exists this amazing archipelago of knowledge, which is hidden from most of us. I think that when more people, people, people realize that it exists and just understand the basic outline, just have a panoramic view of the subject, this will enrich their lives. And so, on, but the problem is that the damage, so much damage has been done in terms of uh, misunderstanding what mathematics is um, due to poor teaching and things like that, that it's very difficult to talk about it directly. So my first project, when I tried to communicate the beauty and power of mathematics to non-mathematicians, was actually done in a language of cinema. And it was a short film uh, called Rights of Love and Math, R-I-T-E-S. Uh, which I uh, co-directed with, with a wonderful French film director, Ren Grab, in Paris uh, four years ago, about four years ago. And it was a short film with, uh, whose premise was that the mathematician discovered a formula of love. And so what happens What happens next? When, if some, what if someone could come up with the ultimate truth, with the ultimate explanation for everything? And what if it took a shape of a mathematical formula? That was the question that this film asked. I think, you know, I, something like that has always interested me. Some of the things that you discuss in your book, as I said, they really resonated with me because they were experiences that I had, although at a lesser level. One of the things that I really enjoyed was a moment when you described of, that you had unearthed or you had proven a theorem and it hit you that at that moment you were the only person in the world who knew that. And I had exactly the same experience. And I'll bet every mathematician, and I'm willing to bet everybody in the sciences does at some stage, because that's part of the beauty of being a scientist, to think that you've discovered something new and for one moment, it's yours alone, and then you want to go out and share it with everybody. And I'll tell you, it's a delight that you decided to share your experiences and your insights and your view of the world in your book. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it immensely. And I know that anyone who reads it will. And I'd like to uh, you so ask you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Oh, it was a pleasure. Um, how can our listeners find out more about you and Love and Math? Do you have a website? Yes. The website is edwardfrankel.com. Uh, just my name, um, E D W A R D F R E N K E L dot com. And uh, uh, you know, I, I really, I would really like to to hear from my readers. So if you read my book, if you if you find my book, if you read it, I would love to to get an email from you. There's an email address on my on my website, and uh, share 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 your views, share your opinions, share your thoughts. On, on the book, that would be very interesting. I'd like this book to be sort of a beginning of a dialogue. I don't want you know everyone to become a mathematician. I don't think that's practical or necessary. But I, I think my, my job will be well done if my readers will be able to see this 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 big world, which may be hidden to, to some extent from them. And I hope that this will enrich enrich their lives. Ed Edward, first of all, I'm sure the book will because it's a fascinating book and you exemplify something that I've always felt that is unique about the mathematical and scientific community. I've written a few books. When anybody writes me, I always write them back. And I remember in the 1980s, I read two books, one by one by Freeman Dyson and one by Linus Pauling. Each of these were Nobel Prize winners 
very famous people. I wrote them letters. They wrote me back. And my feeling is that if I were to have written Mick Jagger or some sports figure or something like that, the chances that I would get a letter back are non-existent. But each of these individuals took the time to write me. I'm sure that when people communicate you beca- with you because you're so passionate about this, you will engage in a dialogue with them. You'll answer their emails because I think that's one of the obligations that a writer has is you don't just put the work out there. It's a work which is meant to involve the audience. And I think you've done, as I said, I think you've done a wonderful job. And I thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Mine too. Take care, Edward. Thank you. Bye-bye.